0: Amen. Lord, that's our desire, that your Holy Spirit would fall afresh upon us all, because, Lord, we know that without you we can do nothing. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be our teacher, you'd minister to our hearts, prepare us to receive from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Good to be out of the rain. Amen. Do be praying about the building situation. We don't care about a building. What we care about is an opportunity to do more ministry, amen? To, do, to have an opportunity potentially to have, I have a burden in my heart to start a Christian school at some point. I'd love to have a Bible college, a school of ministry. I'd love to see that place filled up seven days a week, amen? And you know what? As, as We are to be gathering together more and more, all the more as the day approaches. That's what the Bible says. So be praying, God's will be done, and you know, praise God that our God is greater than the Santa Cruz City Council. Amen? All right. Uh, I do want to encourage the young adult group, again, Friday night, let me encourage you to go. You know, a lot of times, it's easy to come to church, and maybe if you're in that age group, kind of be isolated, and I I guarantee you, go one time, and you'll, you'll build some relationships. And the same is true... For the men's study, the women's study, the married couples. If you're looking to build some relationships, let me encourage you to go. All right, turn your Bibles this morning to James chapter 1, continuing our verse by verse study through the New Testament. It was a blessing to have my dad share last week, it was a joy. And now we're uh, picking up where we had previously left off. Now, I'm going to give you a quick overview of the book of James, and then we'll dig into chapter 1. We'll see how far we get this morning. But James, while a common name in Scripture, in this case, this James is the half-brother of Jesus. Think about that. Now, can you imagine growing up and your big brother is Jesus? I mean, you think you had a bad with a straight-A student for a big brother or sister. Why can't you be like your big brother, right? Can you imagine having Jesus as a big brother? But the thing about James is even though he grew up with Jesus, we know this, that he did not get saved until after Jesus rose from the dead. So even though he grew up in the same home with him, he, he witnessed his life from the front row, he still rejected him as the Messiah. And it wasn't until after the resurrection that he was saved. Now some of us again maybe you're struggling maybe you come from a background where you were taught that Mary was a perpetual virgin. You need to read John chapter 7 and other places that they did indeed have many more children. So James, of course, same mom, different dad. Amen. Half brother of Jesus. So James, though he did not start well, he did become a mighty man of faith. He became one of the pillars of the faith, a strong leader in the church, and in the end, he would be martyred, put to death for making a stand for Jesus Christ. Guys, it's not how we start, but how we finish. And I want to encourage you, maybe, you know, you, you feel like you look back at the beginning of your life and you didn't start so well. You know what's great? God can repair, restore the years that the locusts have eaten, Amen. God can take and use you in a mighty and a powerful way, and don't look behind, but look ahead, and pre- you know that's what Paul said. This one thing I do: I leave that which is behind, and I press onward to the upward call of Christ Jesus. And that's James. James, again, did not start well, but here we see him being used by God. It, Paul would refer to him in Galatians 1 as a pillar of the faith. When the Judaizers later attempted to add circumcision to salvation, to say it was a prerequisite to be saved, it was this very same James who boldly stood up and wisely put this issue to rest. So he's become this pillar of the faith, he's become this mighty man of God as he writes this letter, and he's writing this letter to the Christian church as a whole. Most of the letters are named for a specific church. This was a letter written to all of the Christian church. And one of the things that so many people love about the book of James is it is such an incredibly practical book. It really is one of the most practical and clear and direct. You never have to wonder what James is thinking. He's very clear. And so I want to encourage you that as we go through this, you're going to see just very uh, practical applications and how to live a, a spiritually mature life, that honors God, a life that makes a difference, one that it exemplifies Christ to others. James is not like many scholars today who sit around and debate the minutia of Scripture sometimes, and yet they don't cross the street to tell one person about Jesus Christ. Now let me encourage you, there's nothing wrong with debating Scripture, but if we debate it to the point of missing out on the Great Commission, we've missed what the Scripture says, Amen. And here's James, he's not this scholar to the point of debating in the, you know, the great arenas. Instead, he comes right down to where the people are, he encourages them to go out and live a life for the Lord, a life that will impact others for eternity. So again, it is a, a very favorite book of so many people that I know today because it's so clear and so direct. Now, I put an outline for the entire book, hopefully that's up there. The theme of this book is spiritual maturity. If you had to title the entire book, and it will be the title for this first chapter, it's marks of a mature Christian. In chapter one, we'll see that a mature Christian is patient in testing. I know all of you have that whipped, so it's not a problem. But you know what? Being patient in the midst of trials and testing, we're going to talk about that this morning. When we get to chapter two, we'll see that a mature believer practices truth. He walks by faith. A mature believer doesn't just believe the truth, but he practices it. Number three, he has a power over his tongue. That's a tough one, isn't it? The Bible, as we'll see, talks about it being such a small thing, but like a little rudder steers an entire ship, our tongue steers everything. In chapter four, we'll see that a mature Christian is a peacemaker, not a troublemaker, That he walks in genuine humility. And then in chapter 5, we'll see that a mature believer is preparing for the Lord's return. So I pray that you're as excited as I am to go through this step by step and just get this practical encouragement that we can go out and live even tomorrow. So this morning, the outline for this morning's text, I titled the message, Marks of a Mature Christian. And there are three points. Number one, how we see ourselves and how we see Jesus. Guys, marks of... That we've truly gotten it is how we see ourselves and how we see the Lord. And James is an incredible example of that in verse one. Second, we'll see how to respond to trials and tribulation. And third, where we should turn for wisdom. So let's begin in verse one marks of a mature Christian, how we see ourselves and how we see Jesus. Verse one James, a bondservant of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, ancient letters always began the way that we end ours. We end our letter with who wrote it, sincerely, and then we write our name. But in those days, these letters were almost always written on scrolls. And so, if you had a scroll delivered to you, a lengthy letter, you would literally have to unroll the entire thing to find out who wrote to you. So instead, they would always start off with the way we end our letters, letting the people know who wrote it. So we see very clearly that the author is James. Now James, notice his sense of humility. How can I tell that? Because he doesn't say James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now if I were writing this letter, I would probably let you know very quickly that I'm, you know, Jesus, yeah, my brother, okay, so... You know, creator of the universe, yeah, my brother. Just letting you know. You know put, he doesn't do that, does he? Instead, he refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I love just this humility we see in this man and the incredible work that God has done in his heart. Instead of speaking of his relationship to Jesus in a way that brings honor to himself, he speaks of his devotion to his Lord and his Savior. He says there a bond servant. In Greek, that word is doulos. And it means a servant by choice. Bound not by law, not by debt, not by duty, but by love. In the Old Testament, what would happen is if a Jewish person was in debt to the point that they could not pay off their debt, What would happen is they would have to be enslaved to the person they owed the debt to until they either paid it off or, according to Jewish law, they could only be enslaved for six years, and the seventh year they were allowed to go free, debt paid in full. Now, a bond servant was one, at the end of those six years, who said, you know what? I I love my master, And even though my debt's been paid, and even though I have no more obligation, because I love him, because he loves me, because he cares for me and my family, there's nowhere else in the world I would rather be than here. So you know what? I want to voluntarily make myself a slave to my master for the rest of my life. That's a bondservant. And how do they signify what a bondservant was? They would take them down and in the city square, they would take them to a door and they would hammer a, an awl through their ear, like an earring, a bigger, and they would hammer it through their ear and blood would go upon the doorpost. But it was a mark or a sign that they were now bound over to their master for the rest of their lives. He doesn't say, I'm a slave by debt. He says, I am a bond servant. I'm a servant of Jesus Christ of my own free will out of love for him. You know what? Could it be said of us? Would it be appropriate? Would it be accurate to say Dave, a bond servant of Jesus Christ? I would hope so. For each of us that we're not, you know, following Jesus out of duty, but following him out of love. Amen? And here's James, I'm not the brother of Jesus, but the slave by choice. I've indentured myself to him because I love him. Where else in the world would I want to go? You know what? Sadly, many come today to the Lord and see the Lord as being one who binds them by chains. You know, I witness to people at work, most of you know I have a full-time job, and I witness to people at work, and one of the things I often hear from them is, well, what am I going to have to give up? well, can I still drink? You know, I consider coming to him if I could still party on the weekends. Well, I would still come to him. Well, can I still sleep with my girlfriend? I mean, come on. This is 2008. Let's get over it already. I mean, come on. Can I come to him and still hang on to my stuff? And we almost view Jesus as if I come to him, I have to give up a bunch of stuff. Guys, we don't give up anything. We gain everything in coming to Jesus Christ. Amen. He wants he's not a, as you've heard me say many times. He's no not a no fun bummer God who wants to keep you from fun. He's a loving heavenly father who wants to keep you from harm. Amen. And he, we don't come to him and say, "Okay, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to bind myself to you and I'm going to put on a black robe and push a wheelbarrow full of rules around for the rest of my life and then I'll get to go to heaven." Guys, that's not Christianity, amen? A relationship with Jesus Christ is incredible. It brings joy beyond anything this world has to offer. James understood that. He didn't see himself as bound by law, but bound by love. Guys, we need to understand his incredible love for us that indeed, we don't give up anything, but we gain everything. I love James' heart. Notice how he sees himself. I'm a bondservant, not the brother of Jesus, a bondservant. A mature believer sees himself as a servant in desperate need of our master, amen? And the more that we get to know him, the more we realize we need him. And the more honest we are about ourselves, we see our desperate need for him, amen? Amen? Maybe you came here today and you think you're a pretty good person, and maybe compared to other people you are. But here's the reality. You're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. And we've all fallen short. And none of us is good enough. And you know what? If we were honest, we would all say, yes, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. But notice what he says. I'm a bondservant, but then how does he refer to the Lord? Of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. In the original language, that word and there isn't necessarily there. A bondservant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's linking the two together that Jesus is God. Amen? I had a lady a few weeks ago get mad at me that I said that. Let me tell you one more time. Jesus is God. Amen? He's not a God. He's not one of many gods. He's the only true and living God. And besides him, there are no others. Amen? He is God. And James is making it very clear here. I am a servant, my master is God. And I am a servant of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now by the way, Lord Jesus Christ is not his first, middle, and last name. Amen? Lord speaks of his supremacy, his authority, and his deity. Jesus was his name, it's Yahshua in Hebrew, which means Jehovah is salvation. Amen? Jesus is the one who would bring salvation to mankind. And then Christ means anointed one or Messiah. So he is the supreme deity, he is the one who brings salvation, he is the anointed one and our Messiah, and in just this greeting, James has recognized who he is and who Jesus is, and this is the key to true peace in this life and the one to come is understanding who we are and who Jesus Christ is. Now as I said, he could have been bitter about his brother, but instead he freely Lays down his life and is bound to him. And I think this says something about Jesus' childhood. Uh, James grew up with him. Of course, we know Jesus was without sin. You ever wonder what Jesus was like when he was eight? We know he was a perfect kid. But imagine growing up with him. And no doubt this speaks to the fact that he's, he was God from before the foundation of the world. He was God in human flesh as a baby. He was God in human flesh as an eight-year-old. The entire time he was growing up, he was the example. And James grew up with that. And he saw that example in the one who he could have called brother, but instead he called Lord. And I love this humility. And I love love the heart that he has. And then he says, know who he's writing to, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. The early church was undergoing incredible persecution. This is written during the first century. They had fled Jerusalem in fear of their lives. These were days when the early Christians were being persecuted unto death. Christians were being imprisoned. Christians were being, burnt, were being beaten. Some had been burnt alive. Others were being fed to lions. And you know what? In the midst of all that, what Satan means for evil, God will use for good. Because they were all in Jerusalem. They were all mounted up close to each other, and because of persecution, guess what happened? The gospel went out to the entire known world. Satan thought he was bringing an attack upon God's people, and the persecution simply spread them out all over the place, and now many were getting saved. But he's writing this letter, and he says to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, they're scattered again because of the persecution that they were, they were facing. Guys, here's a perfect example That when we are going through physical trials, we can be overwhelmed. We can start to doubt and question God. Doesn't he care? You know what, guys? It's not about my plan, but his plan. And if it means we need to be scattered so that his plan will come about, then scatter us. Now imagine putting yourself in their place. They're all living in their common land, in their common city. Now they're in a foreign country. They've left everything behind, many of them family members behind. They're in a new city, and now they are the ones to be the evangelists to reach that city or that country where they are. And in the midst of it, they're facing great persecution. And here comes this letter. This letter is written to those who have been scattered abroad. Guys, God was bringing about the Great Commission, and he was doing it through trials. Guys, trials are in our lives for a reason. Then he says, to the 12 tribes which scattered abroad, greetings. Now, this seems a simple enough way to begin a letter, but I love this. This is written to those who are scattered by persecution. This word, greetings, would be better translated, rejoice. Now, you get a letter from somebody And you've had to flee. You've had to run away. You're running for your very life. You've seen maybe family and no doubt friends who've been beaten. Some maybe even put to death. And you get a letter from one of the pillars of the faith. And he starts off the letter by saying, rejoice. I can almost imagine that they must have thought, does he have any idea what we're going through? Has somebody write James a letter back and tell him what's going on over here? because obviously he has no clue how can he say rejoice doesn't he know what we're facing sometimes when we're in the midst of trials a christian will come up to you and encourage you and talk about the goodness of god and you uh, it's good last week you don't know what's going on in my life right now if you knew you wouldn't be saying that. you know what god is good all the time and no matter what's going on in your life he's a faithful god and he's saying to them rejoice Now the following verse makes it very clear that not only does he understand, but the Holy Spirit has given him an incredible perspective on their circumstances. He's about to shed light on the fruitfulness produced by the trials they are going through. So marks of a mature Christian, number one, how we see ourselves and how we see Jesus. Number two, how we respond to trials and tribulation. I want to make a real clear point. We're not talking about temptation. We'll talk about that next week. Trials are things that are unavoidable, that have nothing to do with sinful behavior. God allows them in our life for a reason. Temptation is something that comes from the enemy who's trying to draw us away from God. So this morning, we're not talking about temptation. We'll talk about that next week. We're talking about trials, those difficulties of life that God allows in our lives for a reason. So they see the word rejoice, and if that didn't get to them, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. He's like, uh, he must be out of his mind. We're supposed to be happy about this. By the way, just as a quick side note, the first time I ever taught the Bible to adults, I've been teaching uh, the youth group, which is about six kids around a table. I was in my early 20s. And there were about six kids. I taught maybe four Bible studies in my life. And I go to church on a Wednesday night. I'm sitting in the front row with my wife, waiting for the Bible study to start. The senior pastor's secretary comes out and says, oh, Pastor John wants to talk to you. I go into his office thinking he needs my help, and the phone is off the hook. I pick it up. He says, I'm stuck at the airport. You're teaching. I'm like, I'm teaching when? He said, oh, you probably got five minutes. I'm sure worship's just about over. I'm like, dude, that is not even right. And so I taught James chapter one, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials, because I was in one. I was like, you know, what speaks to me at the moment? James chapter one. But here's the point. He's, in context, these, again, they've left their homes and they're dwelling in a foreign country and so easy in the midst of this to feel like the trial is running everything. So easy in the midst of the trial to put our focus on the trial, on our circumstances and take our eyes off of God. You hear me talk many times often about, you know, the storm that kicked up. As the Lord said, we're going to the other side of the sea, the apostles get in the boat, the storm kicks up, and they say, doesn't he care because the Lord is sleeping? They panicked because their eyes were on the waves when their eyes should have been on Jesus. If their eyes had been on Jesus, they'd have been napping with him, resting in him, Amen. So here this word comes, and no doubt they're focused on the trial, they're focused on their circumstances, and he tells them to count it all joy. Don't be overwhelmed by your circumstances, but realize that God indeed is in control. James' words are going to be words of exhortation and encouragement to those who are feeling anxious and burdened and impatient as they sit in the middle of a trial. Now, count it all joy. This does not mean we view our difficulties of life as something that is easy. But guys, we need to understand that we're not to view them as a source of discouragement, nor consider them as a curse or a punishment, but see them as the source of true happiness. Now, I'm not saying, I just lost my job, so I'm going to do jumping jacks. Count it all joy, I just lost my job. You know, you, you get a flat tire, pull over the side of the road, start doing jumping jacks. You know, I just count it all joy. You know, I mean, no, that's not what he's saying. Although, you know, that's probably a better response than some of the responses you've had. But here's the point. When we've been diagnosed with a serious illness or we're enduring persecution for our faith, the response should be joy. And the word there in the Greek means a calm delight or gladness. To see beyond the immediate circumstance to the eventual fruit. To see beyond what is right in front of me. To realize that God brought this in my life for a reason. He's going to use it for his glory if I will simply let him. To have an eternal perspective. Guys, if there is difficulty in your life and there are trials put there by God, it's because God is going to use it to conform you to his image, but also because he knows he can use you to minister to others through your trial. Count it a blessing. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Notice he says when you fall into various trials. He doesn't say if. Amen? You know, as Christians, here's the reality for most of us, we're either in the midst of a trial, or we're coming out of a trial, or we're about to go into a trial. That's pretty much where we live, right? That's just reality. Now the trials can be can vary in, you know, the severity of them, but God is allowing those things in the word there fall into, speaks of something that is unavoidable, something that is all-encompassing, like falling into a pool of water. Again, unlike sin and temptation that we respond to and go looking for, this is simply as we're walking through life, these trials come, they're unavoidable, they're put there by God to be used for his glory. Guys, start to recognize it's not punishment, it's an opportunity for God to be used in my life, amen, and God to be glorified through me. Now, nobody in this room is above trials. And sometimes we look at others and we think, boy, they've got it easy. But we have no idea that the trials that the people in this room are going through right now. And, you know, and, and I don't want to use myself as an example, but just briefly, because sometimes it, it comes off wrong. But just so you know, your pastor goes through trials just like everyone else. The last several months have been a real difficult time for my family. Most of you know my dad went in for, uh, you know, a fairly common surgery and ended up spending many, many months in the hospital. And you know, it was a heavy-duty time for our family. It was certainly a trial. Uh, in the midst of it, I went back to work, and I went, when I first got there, I got my first few paychecks, and they were for zero money because they said when I left the company many years ago, I still owed them a bunch of money that I didn't know about from somebody who didn't pay. The, and I'm like, oh, this is working out pretty nice. Got a new job am not getting paid, you know, and things like that. And there, these are just little things. And again, all of those things are opportunities because my parents' time in the hospital turned into an opportunity to witness to nurses and staff and people. And you know what? God had them, us there for a reason. And you know what? When we don't get paid or we get shorted or mistreated by our boss, you know what? That's an opportunity for us to stand up for God, not when things are perfect, not we're on the cruise ship to heaven, but in the midst of difficulty, let them see God still being glorified in our lives. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. And we'll see some biblical examples in a moment. I want to say this too. I know that there are people in this room right now going through some really tough times. I know it because I'm your pastor and you ask for prayer. And you know, some of you I know have marriages that are falling apart. Not because of you, but because of your spouse abandoning, walking away. And that is incredibly heartbreaking. Some of you have children in rebellion and it just breaks your heart every day. Some of you, or many of you, are out of work right now, not knowing how... Your family's going to eat in two weeks. Several have dealt with recent deaths of of spouses and family members. Still others are witnessing the heavy consequences of sin upon those they love who are close to them. And it's times like this that we can start to doubt or question God. And his exhortation here is, do not run from God, but run to Him. Understand that you're not alone, that He loves you. He saw this coming and he wants to put his arms around you in the midst of this storm and walk with you through it. Amen? Count on all joy, my brethren. Trials are not by accident. And in the end, as we walk through them faithfully, they do and they will produce fruit. God will be glorified. Look at verse 3. It says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces fruit. Patience. So here's why we should have joy, because the testing of our faith produces something in us. There's a natural fruit or a byproduct of going through tests and trials. The word patience there in Greek is hupomone, and it doesn't speak of passive waiting, but active endurance. He's saying the test doesn't produce a patience where you can just sit around and wait. It produces a patience where you can actively endure and continue to press on in the midst of difficulty. You know the people that I admire the most as far as believers? Those who've been through the most incredible trials and yet are still on fire for God. They minister to me. Many of you know John Corson. If you don't know that name, he was a Calvary pastor up in Oregon. He lost his wife in a car accident. And then some years later, on the same road, he lost his teenage daughter in a car accident. And in the midst of all of it, he did not curse God or doubt God, but bring glory and honor and praise to his name. And he gr- held tightly to the Lord in the midst of it. Guys, those are people that minister to my heart. How about you? And that's the exhortation here is you know what the testing doesn't and i want to say this the testing doesn't produce faith but it reveals it and refines it amen the test doesn't produce faith it just shows if you have any it's easy to say you have faith when everything's good but faith is seen when things are tough now let's see how we respond you know what a test is it's the refiner's fire It melts away the dross, it purifies our faith, but it certainly doesn't, again, it's not the production of faith, but it reveals it. A faith that cannot be tested, indeed, is a faith that cannot be trusted. And guys, if your faith's never been tested, you don't know how deep your faith is. Trials received by faith produce both spiritual endurance and a godly testimony. And again, remember, without a test, there can be no testimony. So guys, as we're going through the trial, it seems overwhelming. God will never give you more than, he, than you can bear. He promises that in his word, amen? If he says so, can we trust him? He will never give us more than he can bear, we can bear. He will never leave us nor forsake us. No matter what you're going through right now, our God loves you. You're his child. He's with you. Be encouraged. And know that in the midst of all of this, God will use it for his glory, God allows our faith to be tested. Peter Peter would later write that our faith is far more valuable than gold. We can lose sight of how valuable our faith is. And again, it's that fire that refines us. In the midst of trials, we need to keep moving forward, keep running to God, not from Him. And godly character cannot be produced apart from faithfulness in the midst of trials. If you want to be a spiritually mature believer, the only way... That there's going to be real, deep, strong growth is if you go through a trial and continue to walk with God. People say, I want to be closer to the Lord. Okay, hold on. Amen? Grab a hold and get ready. Because when you look at those used most mildly by God in Scripture, who are they? They're people that have been through heavy-duty trials and heavy-duty difficulty. The characteristic of one who is not swerving from this deliberate walk with the Lord. Because it says there in verse 4, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Again, here we see that ultimate patience, endurance. is walking with the Lord, not being shaken, even in the midst of the greatest trial. And it says there, let patience have its perfect work work. A good translation there would be it's full effect. Let it have the full effect it's supposed to have in your life. Don't miss out on what God wants to teach you in this. Don't miss out on how God wants to minister through you in the midst of this. Let it have it's perfect work. Let it have it's full effect. And this doesn't happen by giving up but by pressing in. When we give up and murmur and doubt God and seek to escape the trial rather than grow through it, It reveals not only our spiritual immaturity and lack of faith, but it keeps us from developing godly character and it destroys our testimony. You know what? The people that know you're a Christian are watching. And when you are in the midst of it, they're watching to see how you respond. And you can do one of two things. You can bring glory to his name or have them go, there's another hypocrite. Yeah, they love God when they have a bunch of money in the bank and everyone's healthy, but how do they respond now? Guys, is our God in just as much in control when everything, and from our perspective, is perfect as when everything seems to be in disarray? What's the answer? He's absolutely in control. He's absolutely faithful. Guys, quit looking at the circumstances. Look at the Lord. Keep your eyes on Him. God is for us, he is with us, we need not be afraid. The world panics in difficulty, we should not. He's saying let endurance in trials have its full effect, don't cut it short. Guys, we can't run a marathon if we don't run a mile, amen? If we quit after a lap, we'll ne- you know, I, have to com- I don't think I've ever run more than like two miles, ever, and I probably never will. But it would be insane to go out and try to run a marathon next weekend. I'd just be dead. It would be game over. But here's the point. We want to run the race. We want to finish the race for the Lord. But yet if we bail out every single time we get winded, every single time the trials come, we will never move further or deeper in our walk with him. Guys, these tests are a part of growing. They are indeed growing pains then it says that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing what is perfect and complete it means fully developed in christian character and spiritual maturity and again this character is developed over time through a great number of trials i want to be mature in my faith right now It's not how it works the bible says lay hands on no man quickly why because it takes time for us to mature in our faith Look again, as I mentioned before, at some examples in Scripture of those used mightily by God. Think of David. How did David start out? He was a shepherd boy, watching sheep, killing lions and bears with his bare hands, or maybe with his slingshot, having no idea that that was preparation to fight Goliath. You're going through a trial, you have no idea what God's preparing you for next. It's through those trials that you grow. It's through those trials that you mature. It's through those trials that you become prepared for what God has next. It didn't end there for David. He faced Goliath. He ran from Saul. He lived in caves. And you know what? All of that was preparation to be king. What about Joseph? His own brothers first threw him in a ditch, plotted to kill him, sold him into slavery. He became a slave. And then, because he was a godly man... He was elevated to a point of second in command in Potiphar's house. Then Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of of, uh, raping her, and he was thrown in prison. All he's done so far is be faithful to God. And it seems like, ooh, how's that working out? But here's the point. God was preparing him to be a prince in Egypt. Guys, it's those trials when we think we don't understand that we must trust that God is faithful. He hasn't forgotten about you. You're always on his mind. You're his treasured possession. It's not happening by chance. He loves you. Amen? Be encouraged in the midst of trials. Now, one of my favorite people in Scripture is the Apostle Paul. And I think the Apostle Paul's got the greatest resume for trials. And again, I want to be like Paul. Okay, let me read this list to you and see if you still think that way. Don't turn there, but it's in Second Corinthians, and it says this. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak of a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes, that's beatings, above measure. In prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times, I re- received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That's with rocks, okay? Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils and waters, in perils with robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils of false brethren in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often in hunger and thirst and fastings often in cold and nakedness besides the other things that come upon me daily that's the apostle paul's resume is it any wonder that he had incredible boldness for the lord Is it any wonder, you know what, I believe this to be true. He was stoned at Lystra, left for dead. I believe he did die. It's the time where Paul talks about being brought up into the third heaven. He got a glimpse of heaven, and seeing what was in front of him, he came back fearless. Guys, when we have a heavenly perspective, there's nothing this world can dish out to us that's too much. Amen? Guys, we're going to heaven. Worst thing the world can do to us, best thing that can happen to us. Paul went right back into Lystra, like, stone me again. I know where I'm going. It makes no difference. And I love this passion and heart. This is the the, the deep character that comes in the midst of trials. Next time you're in a trial, if you're in a trial right now, don't murmur. Praise God for it and say, Lord, let it have its full effect in my life. Let it have its full effect that I might become the man or the woman of God that you want me to be. Later, the Apostle Paul said this, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Then he says this, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day. Now listen to this. For our light affliction, which is for but a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Boy, is that perspective or what? I read you the list. What did he call it? Light affliction. We think an ingrown toenail is heavy-duty affliction. This guy was beaten and left for dead. He was scourged. I mean, look at the things that happened. Imprisoned and nakedness and weariness. Oh, light affliction. You know why? Seen heaven. Amen. I've seen what's in front of us. This is nothing, guys. Don't sweat it. It's not a big deal. We're going to heaven. God's with us. He's going to use us for his glory. Let's trust him. God, let the trials in my life have the full effect. Later he would say, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, until I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify of the grace of God. And then, what a great example of someone lacking nothing. Does Paul sound like he's missing out on anything? The trials of life have brought him to the place where he realizes if Jesus is all he has, Jesus is all he needs. Amen? He's, I got Jesus, I lack nothing. But you were, Paul, you had no food. People are beating you. They threw rocks at you until you were dead. I lack nothing. I have Jesus. Guys, if you have Jesus this morning, you lack nothing. Amen? You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You lack nothing. The word nothing there means none, not even one. One who has faithfully and patiently endured through trials. Again, from the world's perspective may seem to have lost everything But having grown in spiritual maturity, have experienced time when the Lord was all they had, and now they know that he's all they need. In the midst of the greatest difficulty, if we have the Lord, indeed, we truly lack nothing. Last four verses. Third point. Mark of a mature Christian, where do we turn for wisdom? Now look what he says here. So he's exhorted them on, you know how we, we should see ourselves, we, given the example anyway, of how he sees himself and how he sees Jesus, then how to respond in the midst of trials and tribulation. Now look at verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Now anybody in here ever lacked wisdom, raise your hand. Hands on up, you're a liar and you're prideful. Amen? Can I tell you something as a pastor? Probably 70% of the prayer requests that I have from people in one way or another are seeking wisdom. How do I deal with these circumstances? How do I deal with my rebellious child? How do I respond to my boss? You know, Which job should I take? Which direction should I go? Should I be involved in this relationship? All of these are simply seeking God's wisdom, aren't they? God, show me your will. Now, notice what he says to these in the midst of persecution. They're being persecuted for their faith. And what does he say? If you don't know what to do in the midst of the trial, go ask God. Amen? If you don't know how to respond in the midst of this, seek wisdom from the Lord. You know, the Bible is one of the greatest sources of wisdom. It used to be a Bible break song my kids grew up singing. And it goes through all the books of the Bible. And it says, Proverbs is the book of wisdom. And kids who don't read Proverbs is dumb. And you know what? The truth is that the word of God is so rich. And if we want to be wise in our faith, let's spend time with the Lord. Amen? But we seek him out in prayer. When we're in the midst of the trial, guys, do you know that as you seek to know the Lord's will for your life, do you know there's someone that wants his will for your life more than you? Him. Amen? And he's not going to hide it from you. Oh, he's asking for my will. I just want you. I'm not going to tell Make, you. Know, he, that's not our God. Amen? Look what it says. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Now, guys, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. It's been said knowledge is the, the ability to take things apart, and wisdom is the ability to put them back together. Knowledge is raw understanding, but wisdom has the ability to apply it to my life. Amen? And sadly, we often go to the world for knowledge when we should be going to God for wisdom. He should be our first stop, not the last resort. Amen? I've tried everything else. I've talked to everyone else. I guess I better pray about it. Guys, let's pray first. Let's go to the Lord first. If you lack wisdom, ask of god trials by almost by their very definition are situations beyond our control and again one of the many blessings of a trial is it forces us to turn to god to seek his help the bible says the fear of god is the beginning of wisdom apart from god there is no wisdom so when we lack wisdom when we don't know what to do Let him ask of God. The word ask there is call for, crave, desire. Do you desire to hear from the Lord? Do you crave it? Are you desperate to hear from God? Lord, help us to be desperate. God should be, again, that first one we run to, not the last resort. And notice what happens when we do it. Who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You go to the Lord, and God wants to bless you. The word liberally there means bountifully. He doesn't want to hold back. Now notice, he's not talking about stuff, is he? That's the misinterpretation of this verse. Go to God, and he'll give you liberally. You know what he wants to liberally give you? Wisdom. Isn't that greater than gold? Isn't that greater than anything this world has to offer? Solomon asked for wisdom. God made him the wisest man on the earth. We need to be seeking God not for stuff, but for wisdom and intimate fellowship with Him. And it says He gives it to us without reproach, which means He doesn't taunt us or chide us or defame us. When you come to God, He will not mock you. He won't say, why are you asking me that again? He doesn't do that. He shows incredible patience with us, doesn't He? He's such a loving God. He is so glad that you came. You could ask Him the same. He just loves that you're there. My child has come. Ask me anything you want. He'll never chide you. He'll put his arm around you. He'll encourage you and he'll bless you and he'll minister to you. You're his child. He loves you. Notice again, it says, and it will be given to him. If we seek godly wisdom, he promises to give it to us. Now, I wanna say this. Sometimes he makes us wait to get the answer. Why? Because it's his will and his time, not ours. Amen? Amen? We pray in our time, God answers in his time, his timing is perfect, and we need to learn to trust him and to rest in him. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Guys, if we come and we ask and we do not believe that he is faithful to his promises, we are wasting our time. We come to God and say, you know what, I believe what you say in your word. I believe the promises you've made. I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek you, and I'm going to wait until you tell me what to do. I'm not going to go ahead of you. I'm not going to go before you. I'm going to rest in you. And when you tell me to go, that's when I'll go. I'm waiting on you, Lord. I'm trusting in you. You know what's best for me. That's truly coming to him in faith. But the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed by the wind. You know, it's so sad when, we, when there are those who doubt. They, they have enough faith to ask God, but not enough faith to, to st- stay by Him, to wait upon Him. The word doubting there is wavering or to hesitate, stagger. Without faith, it is impossible to please God or to hear from Him. We don't come questioning or doubting, but believing, amen? Understand, you're coming into the presence of the creator of the universe. It's a total privilege to be there. He wants to hear from you. How in the world are we not praying more? We shall make my Father's house a house of prayer, Jesus said, amen. And we ought to be praying more. What a privilege that we can enter in. What else is more important than that? But sadly, without faith, they're being blown back and forth between faith and unbelief instead of waiting upon God. Verse seven, for let no... Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Hebrews eleven six says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith is not stepping out into the unknown, but it's stepping out in obedience to the word of God. God said it, I believe it, that's enough, let's go do it. Amen? He promises. We trust his promises. But a double-minded man doubts God's word. He questions God's word. And look at the end result. He's a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. When we waver between faith and unbelief, the end result is a lack of stability in every aspect of our life. Guys, if we don't have the proper faith in the Lord to trust him in his word, our entire life is going to be a mess and out of balance. It's so sad to see people blown back and forth by every wind of doctrine. The latest thing comes down the pike, and they go for it. Why? They don't have faith in what they've already read. Amen? If it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. We've got the whole thing in our hands. Let's spend time in it and trust God and walk by faith in these 66 books right here. Amen? And when the next thing comes down the pike, they blow by. And those who are not firmly grounded in their faith are those who will catch every wind of doctrine and follow it. So in closing, a marks, marks of a mature Christian. Number one, how we see ourselves and how we see Jesus. We're bondservants. He's Lord, God, Savior, and King. Number two, how we respond in trials and tribulation. We are to count it all joy. Let it have its full effect in our lives that God might be glorified in the midst of this difficulty. And then lastly, where do we turn for wisdom? Not to the world, but to the Lord. We trust in his word. We wait upon him because he loves us and his timing and his ways are perfect. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you just how practical this is. And Lord, for all of us in this room, those who are in the midst of a trial, help them, Lord, to count it all joy. Help them, Lord, to trust in you, to rest in you, to let this trial have its full effect in their lives. Father, if we're not in a trial now, we know one's coming. We thank you for it. And God, I pray in the midst of it that we would not be doubting you, questioning you, murmuring against you, but Lord, holding tight to you. You're such a faithful God. You never give us more than we can handle. Lord, be glorified in our lives. Help us to live in such a way that people will see Jesus in us, that we will reflect you. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.